There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today on the show, I am joined by the mad scientist, the greatest of all time, some say, Mark Drury, for an absolute masterclass on the art of patterning bucks. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. It's good to be here. I'm very, very excited. We have got a great episode for you today, and it is kicking off a series. This has been the year of series. It's been a fun way to organize our months as we've gone throughout the year. And after killing my buck last week in Michigan, I spent some time thinking about what, you know, what led to that success? What was I doing? What was I geeking out about? It was really patterning. I was having so much fun looking at all the data, thinking through what are these deer doing and why are they doing it and where are they going to do it again and when are they going to do it again? And all of that was part of what led me to you know hunting where I did and killing that buck the way that I did. And I got to thinking there's a whole lot more we could be discussing on this idea of patterning bucks. And the month of October is a great month to pattern a buck. So October 2022 is the month of the pattern, and we are going to kick that off. If, if we don't include last week's, which was kind of like a soft kickoff, today the real kickoff of this month is this masterclass with Mark Drury. You should all know Mark. He's been on the podcast many times. He's one of the co-founders of Drury Outdoors, host of many different deer hunting TV shows. Uh, you can find him on the DeerCast app, the Drury Outdoors YouTube channel, all over the place. And he is an absolute wealth of information. And there's two things that I think he specializes in, maybe three, but one of them is really dissecting and 
deep dive understanding how environmental and weather factors impact deer movement. We've talked to him several times deep on that topic. But another one that we haven't gone quite as deep on in the past is patterning deer, how he kind of collects and analyzes data about specific deer and then helps develop a pattern of what they're going to do and when they're going to do it so he can be there to get a shot when they do. And that is our topic today. We go into all facets of patterning deer, everything from how he collects the data to how he correlates different factors with his observations and pictures, all the way to how he chooses when to actually act on that stuff and try to take a shot at these deer. We talk early season patterning. We talk patterning during the rut. We talk late season, uh, all sorts of stuff in between. This is a banger episode. And if you want to kill a deer this month in October, Shoot, even if you want to kill it in November or December, you're going to learn something today that will help you do it. I loved it. I think you will too. I want to give you a couple quick updates before I let you go. Uh, one, the final episode of my show, Deer Country, drops this week. So if you haven't yet, head on over to the Meat Eater YouTube channel and check out Deer Country. It is the six-episode series that documented my hunts last year as I traveled the country met with different regional experts, sent, spent one day learning from them in their neck of the woods, and then I spent the next three days seeing if I could replicate their style in their general area and pull it off myself. This last episode was all about looking behind the curtain of how you know folks in the Midwest manage for big deer and actually, in this case, run an outfitting situation. Very interesting, very new kind of situation for me. Would love it if you could check it out. So that's number one. Number two, this is a big one. This week, if you are listening to this when we drop this episode, this episode is coming out October 13th, 2022. If you're listening on October 13th, 2022, or the next couple days afterwards, I want you to know that this week is Meat Eaters Whitetail Week. We got a whole lot of exciting stuff happening when it comes to whitetails at Meat Eater. One of them is First Light's Whitetail Sale. All of First Light's Whitetail Gear Inspector is 20% off. 20% off any of that First Light Whitetail stuff you might need. The Catalyst, the Solitude, the whatever. Check it out if you're in need of some last-minute stuff. 20% off. Number two, Phelps Game Calls. It is the game call company that's part of Meat Eater, right? They've done duck calls. They've done elk calls. They've done turkey calls. This week, they are launching deer calls. We've got a bunch of new grunt tubes, fawn distress call, bleats, uh, I personally have really been liking and using the Beta Pro and the Alpha, I believe are the names of these two grunt tubes. I've gotten to test them so far this year. I really like the sound. There's some really good things with them. I'll get into more detail on these calls in the future, but just a heads up, Phelps has got new grunt tubes. If you need a grunt tube, this is worth checking out. More to come later. If you have been thinking about this kind of stuff, this is probably going to be one of the best opportunities you've got to do it to uh, get it for cheap. So, heads up on those type of things. There's several other deers, deals from Timber Ninja. There's discounts on our Whitetail logo wear. There's uh, geez, some deals from FHF. There's a lot going on. I don't want to drag us out anymore, but Meat Eater Whitetail Week is going on till October 16th. Head on over to TheMeatEater.com. Go to the Meat Eater store. Go to FirstLight.com. You're going to find it all there. Good stuff. And that's it for me. That's my only other update. We got a master class to get to, folks, so enough of me jabbering on. <sighs> I love patterning bucks. I love this stuff. 
I love nerding out on the data, on what these deer were doing, on what they might do, on where I should be to maybe take advantage of it. It's so much fun. And Mark Jury is just one of my favorites. I love this guy. I love his approach. Uh, I have nothing else to say. Let's get to it. Mark Jury on the podcast. Masterclass. Patterning Bucks. One, two, three, go. All right. Back with me, we have the great privilege of having Mr. Mark Drury on the show. Mark, thank you for coming back on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. How are you doing this morning, Mark? I'm really good. I'm really good. I uh, filled a buck tag in Michigan opening night. I uh, went to Ohio and did some scouting yesterday, so I'm, I'm just basking in the glory of deer season. <laughs> Man, that picture of you and the family, I mean, that, that really put a smile on my face and I know your smile is probably still there from yes. that moment. That was pretty awesome, dude. It was, it was, uh, the first time that the whole family could be together for that. And, um, my, my, the first track job for my youngest son, my two year old. So, so yeah, super cool. And it was funny after we recovered that buck, we we're all sitting there together and, and my oldest son ever, he's four, he kind of turns and looks at the family and he like shouts like really loud. He says, it's our first family buck. <laughs> and I, I just loved it. I just loved and, you it. You know, that's a true statement. Yeah. Those bucks are, you know, the, the family allows you the time and allows you to have the passion you allow, right? Or that mm -hmm. you have. So that's a cool thing when they get who you are and embrace it. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. When they don't, it's it's a rough rough time for most hunters. Because yeah. I've I've known guys like that, and I'm sure you do too. Where mm -hmm. the, the spouse or the children probably maybe get a little jealous over the time and the selfishness that we all have when it comes to this time of the year. So yeah. you're blessed to to have a family that is uh, aware of your passion and embraces it. Yeah, very, very, very true. Uh, speaking of things worth celebrating, I saw that you had a uh, pretty exciting night last night too, and probably late night. So I got to thank you again for. Uh, for hopping on the phone here this morning after what seemed like a pretty uh, eventful night. Can you uh, can you fill us in on what happened? Dude, it was such a cool day yesterday. I, I did an interview in the blind, and I, I had intel on a really nice deer that I was in on last night. Wade, which is the one you're referring to, I had intel on him, and Terry had intel on a giant. So all three of these deer, like, 180 plus type deer oh, wow. and all three of us were on them and i did this interview and i told perry i said i don't ever recall where we had intel and all three of us are on giants the same night and i said i feel really good somebody's going to kill and i said i think it's going to be wade because that buck we had a cell picture of his going to bed that morning at 809 something like that and he was he was heading south out of the field on a south wind and the, the access to that spot is very good. In fact, I don't know if you recall the deer that I killed last year, December 20th, we called him the fork buck Yeah, and he, he grossed a little over 190. Well, the last time that blind was sat was that night, December 20th. And then last night, and then Wade killed a 188 out of it. So oh, wow. the, the hit was just a little bit back, but quartering away. So I, I got opinions from tracker, John and Bobby Culbertson, the same two guys that are in deer cast track you know, giving the advice in there on track jobs. And we waited the, the appropriate time and then took up the trail. And you're right. It was a, a late night. The deer traveled about five or 600 yards, but we found him dead in his first bed on a, a really good blood trail. It went stomach, liver, lung, and, uh, the celebration began. And then all the, of course, all the work begins. So <laughs> I went to bed about, oh, 
about two thirty, and I was I still saw three o'clock um, last night, and then I woke up this morning about six thirty, the normal time. So oh, it was it was a short night, but you know what? That's what that's what we do, and we love it. We live for those nights, you know. Yes. We live for those those no sleep nights, you know. Yep. Who, who cares about a night where you get seven or eight hours? I'll take those three hour yeah. nights every time. That's what that's the good problem to have right there. You you want to have reason to miss sleep this time of year. Big time, big time, and it was Wade's biggest deer. It was a mainframe eight point, and it had uh, ten kickers, so it had eighteen total score points. It was a six and a half year old deer. And the cool thing about this deer, and it really, it really kind of blends into what we're talking about today. When this deer was four and a half in 2020, I had a few pictures of him scattered throughout the fall on this tractor ground. This farm is about 417 acres. It's right on a major highway. I lose deer to the highway. And um, I had a sprinkling of pictures. So I didn't consider him like one of those deer. You know how it is. You get them every day and you're like, hey, it's a homeboy. And I never considered him a homeboy. Last year, and that year, he was probably a hundred and high 30s type eight point. But he wore it well. He had that wide frame. Last year, he was probably high 40s, low 50s. Had him all summer. I got one hard, hard pick and he vanished. I mean, gone. And all year, I kept waiting to get a picture of him had more cameras out, couldn't get him. And all of a sudden, late December, he shows back up. And I was like, that son of a gun. He left the entire fall, at least presumably left. I didn't have, I didn't have photography of him. We hunted the farm a good bit. That was where the pork buck live, lived. And I never saw the buck, never encountered him. I just assumed he was dead from the highway or another hunter. There's a lot of pressure around that farm. And then he shows back up late December. So this summer, when he showed up in velvet, we knew he was a giant, you know, right away. I, I guessed the deer in the 180 somewhere. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's the deer that disappeared last year. And, uh, you know, this year he shed his velvet. I got more pictures and I'm like, huh, he's sticking around. But in my heart, I was like, this deer's going to, again, transfer to a fall range, in my opinion which I I eventually talked to a gentleman that, that had the buck all fall and they passed him because uh, because he was an eight point and they were on another a different target deer. That farm is probably a mile, mile and a half east of mine. Hmm. So my assumption was he was again going to switch home ranges this year or fall ranges. And that's why when he stuck around, we made an extra effort to get on him with cell cams and – and the food plots that he was using went back to when he was four, researched where he was the most, and ended up killing him in one of those two fields where he was at the most when he was there during this period. So it really speaks to exactly what we're talking about, yeah. how patternable they can be when their home range overlays from one year to the next. They really do a lot of the same things. So. Yeah, so this is a this is a great example, and maybe we can kind of dial in on a few things with this story. You know, the the, the focus I really am hoping to dive into is is just everything on how you pattern these bucks, Mark. And the first thing I'm wondering with with a buck like this or any deer, when do you start the patterning process? Like, when does a buck show up on your radar and you say, okay, this is what we have to, you know, we're going to label him as X or we're going to 
create a folder or we're going to, you know, when does that start? Are these two-year-old bucks? Are they three-year-old bucks? Like when does the, the file start getting developed? You know, I have a lot of trail cameras, as you know, and I run probably 90 cells and another 150 normal reconnex cameras annually. Now that's across three states. So it's across a lot of different farms and leases and so on and so forth. And I will answer that question by this. I have a, a file of photos that starts in 2007 that includes every racked buck I've ever taken a photo of and every photo of that racked buck from the time that they are two and a half until they disappear or we kill them or whatever. So I try to start putting a pattern on them the moment they have a, a decent rack. And if it's a year and a half old that, that shows real promise, you know, you know, I don't keep spikes and four corns and six yeah. points and that type of stuff. But if it's a, a year and a half that shows real promise, I keep files on them as well. So, you know, my, my entire fall is just swallowed up looking at photography. I, I, I don't know how many pictures I'm at now. I mean, I used to always feel like I was at a million, but I, I'll bet you I'm 1.5 to 2 million photos annually of that. I'll keep maybe 100,000. And I've got those all stored in, in my computer and in hard drives from 07 through present day. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> I've got I've got like nine different directions we could go with this, and I'm not sure where where I want to. Uh, I'm like I'm like the child that's addicted to candy that goes to Willy Wonka's candy shop, you know, and just sees everything all around him that he wants to, that he wants to have. I want to, this is like the thing I nerd out about the most too. So I guess, I guess let's just jump into something you just said right there, which was you have a hundred thousand pictures that you might be keeping and you are keeping photos of bucks from the time they're noticeably, you know, unique. So maybe oftentimes that's two and a half years old. When you get a deer like this one that Wade was on and you realize, okay, this was a, a buck that, you know, we noticed last year we passed him. Now this year he's back and he's, he's definitely a buck we want to shoot. How do you go about sorting through everything you had? Like, how do you make, uh, how do you find all the past pictures of his? How do you have it organized so you can then see, okay, here's all the photos of this buck. Here's the way I'm going to think through pictures from last year versus this year how are you able to find it compile it in a way you can actually analyze and then make decisions from given the fact that you have just so much out there already to sort through i guess my big big question is how do you sort through and find the most important pieces within a a hay pile it's it's it it is a hay pile because it's a time-consuming deal to go through and, and and find them again because i have in Iowa, I probably have, you know, 50 different locations within uh, Reconyx Buckview. And it's the program I've used since 07, and it, it has served me quite well. Um, and, you know, so I will, I would de- designate a farm, call it the, the, this farm, for instance, call it the, the 257. All right. Because this track was 257. I eventually, I bought it uh and it attached it to a 160 that i own so now it's a 417 but this particular piece was 257 acres so i have it in there as the 257 i have the long bottom file i have 257 ridge i've got every different camera on that farm labeled accordingly and then as i look at the cards and as i look at the pictures i am shuffling them into all those different files 
So I can go back, you know, to 13, 14, 15, whatever year it is, and, and look at that particular camera area and see how the, how the deer, deer moved. And then I can start finding that buck once he appeared within that farm and find out what days he daylighted, when he was there, so on and so forth. So I don't then peel him out and create a file on him. Sometimes I do, but that's not the file I'm looking at. I'm looking at all the other aspects that might affect a deer's movement during daylight. So I'm looking for other deer. Um, I have notes within DeerCast, our app, as to what the uh, crop rotation was on that field or in that area, not only on my farm, but on the out, out, outlying farms. I have files of the weather data from those years so that if I find a daylight picture, call it when he was four and a half years old in 2020, and I find two or three in a row, I can go back and research what was the weather like, what was the food like, what was the mass crop like, what was the rainfall like, and then start to put together why he did what he did. So it, it's, it's data at a fairly high level, but that's how we're killing them. And I, I do these deep dives when we get a target buck. I go backwards in my file. So that's why it's important that I keep every single rack buck photo because you're building that buck's history and that buck's life. And then when he, if he stays around and if he gets to five or six and if he becomes a target, which by and large, most do not, they fall off the map at age three, age four, age, you know, through time, you lose a lot or they, they're there here today, gone tomorrow. They're on a walkabout outside of their home range. You get pictures and I keep them just in case they walk about again. But a deer that is a semi homeboy like this, I had some pretty good data points that I could go back on and, and, and figure him out. So, and he really wasn't that hard to figure out because he was so, so confined to two spots that were in, in both years, uh, were, were bean fields. Actually, the, in 2020, he, he was on a bean field that I did a green-to-green transfer, and then he did it again this year, and that's where he killed him. The other field where Wade encountered him at the other night, which is only about 200 yards from where he killed him, is a big ridge field that they love to go bad on this north face on hot days. That's the other thing I learned about the farm and then this buck. And right below that, there was a big giant bean field in 20 and it's beans again this year. So, you know, perhaps the crop rotation had something to do with it. It was also a good acorn year in 20 and 22. Mm -hmm. So all of those things come into play, um, when it, when it comes time to, to kill a deer. So it's not about the deer always. It's also about the environment. And that's one of the reasons we did the things we did within deer cast. You know, we, we've always had the predictive model. We extended that to 14 days this year, but this year we came up with our mapping solutions. Well, within that, we have the wind and we have mass crop and we have overall rain with our rain stations. All the things that people really need to focus in on, I think, to help them take their game to the next level. So, you know, there's, there's better mapping solutions out there, in my opinion. I think there's apps with better maps, but I don't think there's any out there with better tools to help you kill a whitetail than, than what deer cast is. We stayed in our lane and focused directly on the whitetail deer and the hunter and the environment that they live in. Yeah, this is some pretty cool stuff. I, I love that rain gauge feature. That is That one just jumped out to me as, gosh, I would die to have that 
kind of information for over, over the years with food plots and whatnot. Exactly. Like it's, it's so important to not only like our success, like, okay, basics, I put the seed in the ground. I don't get rain. It doesn't grow. I put the seed in the ground. I get two tenths of an inch of rain. The seed swells. It doesn't grow. I get a two inch rain. Holy cow. I've got the best looking food plot I've ever had. So that in it, the way we look at it, you know, on the surface is like, that's important to my success. Well, what happened in April, May, and June that this deer grew 45 inches versus the last two years when he was a 140 and a 150. And now all of a sudden this year, yeah. he's 188. You know, well, guess what? We had a wet spring. What happened five years ago? We had a wet spring. And when he was a fawn, he was off to a good start because we had a tremendous acorn crop that year. So rainfall is so important to the overall health of the herd. You know, what happens when we don't get the right amount of rainfall here at the right times of the year, all of a sudden you have EHD. And that affects overall daylight pictures and overall daylight movement. So I think outside of just the um, the trail photos that you keep, the notes you keep about your environment also help you put patterns together through the decade. Because as things occur now, Terry and I have been hunting long enough. I'm 55. I started hunting when I was 15. Terry's 65. Well, we've seen many falls come and go. We've seen great acorn crops. We've seen terrible ones. We've seen crops fail. We've seen them succeed to the point that they're 200 bushel corn and, you know, 70 bushel beans. We've, you know, we've seen it all before. So therefore, when it repeats, we have a better understanding of how to succeed. And, and a lot of this is mental notes, but a lot of it is written notes and stuff that I've, I've journaled through the years about what happened when the weather was like this. And that's how we came up with the algorithm for DeerCast. So it, it's just really paying attention to every detail, but it's going to be a time suck for you if you want to take it to that level. Like it's, it's almost 24-7 throughout the entire fall to really hone in on all these different things I'm talking about. Because the environment and the food sources are just as important to the deer, ultimately his health, and how he's going to move, you know, daylight versus nighttime that year. There's a lot of different factors that to plug in on. Yeah, you really gotta love it. I uh, I was four. I don't know what's two nights before opening day here in Michigan. I was sitting at like eleven o'clock at night at my computer. And I had both monitors up, and I had a spreadsheet with all of my daylight trail camera photos of my main target buck and all the different weather factors, yada yada yada, all the different data points there. Then I had a note document open where I had listed out everything this buck had done in twenty twenty one within like a 10-day window of opening day. And then I had everything he'd done this year so far for the last three weeks. And then I had notes on the two locations I was considering and what other deer had been in there last year and this year. I was looking at all this stuff and I'm having the time of my life. And I texted some of my buddies in my group chat and they're like, oh my God, that looks miserable. You're a nut job. And in my head, I thought this is the best part of it. This is the best. (laughs) You really got to love that. I agree. I love data. You know, and I, I love stats, you know, and it's it's pretty cool because they are patternable, but you got to have the pieces of the pie to pattern them. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, keeping track of the environmental factors and all the other things outside of just pictures. And this is one thing that I have struggled with actually over the years and not done a good enough job of. That is like keeping track of all of those outside things. Um, I've I've started and stopped multiple hunting journals where I'm 
every year I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep track of everything. And I do it for a few days or a few weeks. And then I lose, I lose it. Uh, what does that look like for you? Do you keep a consistent journal? Do you, you know, do you track stuff just during the hunting season or are you writing something down online or in a book or, you know, how, how do you personally do that? I, I keep a lot of notes within DeerCast because we allow for it, you know, within the different uh, waypoints and whatnot. But a lot of it is honestly in my mind. Like, I, I don't know. I think I was lucky that I have a mind that like, I think it's because I'm so hyper-focused on killing them. Like I know how important it is. So therefore I remember it, if that makes sense. Like I can't remember my wife can bring up 10 subjects in a row and I'll have a, a barely a memory of, of any of them. <laughs> but when it comes to it, but it comes to a deer, the barometric pressure, the wind speed, the wind direction. I mean, I, there's not a deer I've ever killed that I couldn't spit it out. If you ask me, you know, I mean, I just, I've been very lucky to, to have it. And, and again, I think that's probably a selfishness on my part because I'm so obsessed with them. Right. Uh, you know, so a lot of it is just memory. I, uh, I can't, uh, I can't say I have that same memory. So I'm jealous of that. I've, I've got to figure out a better way to lock this stuff down on paper. Um, we'll see if this is the year I can finally do a better job of it. Here, here's something I'm curious about, uh, historical weather data, right? That's something that of course you've mentioned as being something you like to take a look at and see, you know, how it correlates with daylight pictures in the past or daylight observations. This is a two part question. And one part, maybe you don't want to answer. And if you don't want to answer, you don't need to Uh second part. You can tell me, but part a is, can we get historical weather data in DeerCast someday? Because I would love it if I could see that right in my DeerCast app versus having to go to a different website. So that's part A. And then part two is where do you personally go to get your historical weather data? I've created my own. Okay, so two answers. DeerCast looks at the future and the past. Okay, so on a, on a daily basis, if it's giving you a prediction, it's looking backwards and it's looking forward. So say you wanted to rewind the clock five years, it would have to look backwards several days and look forward several days to recreate the prediction for that day. That was an algorithm and a cost of an API that was cost prohibitive by, not by a little, but by a lot, <laughs> like put, put you out of business. You know, when we ask the question, can we do this? Because we have an API, like weather is for the most part, a predictive model in and of itself. So the API comes in, we pipe that into our algorithm and it all works, right? Cause it's all recent. It's all right there in their computers to go back and dig it up was they're, they're like, well, no one's ever asked for that before, you yeah. know? And in other words, it was impossible. And the quote was cost prohibitive. So I do it myself. I screenshot my deer cast every day and I keep a file and I have since it came out. So I've got every day's weather data for where I hunt since the start of it so wow that's the best way to do it okay well i uh because then it's all there if you look at our screen everything you want to know is all on on that hourly forecast right put it at you know noon or put it at 8 a.m or 6 p.m and screenshot it you've got every single readout you want but going back and doing it is just absolutely cost prohibitive. Yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, well, I can dream, I guess. <laughs> and and I, it's, it's cost prohibitive because of how many days yeah. 
equal into the prediction for that moment, right? We're giving you an hour by hour forecast, but in reality, it's looking forward and looking backwards to give you that hour. And then, then if you wanted to rewind the clock five years, it's, it's almost, it's so tangled up. You can't do it. Yeah. That's a doozy. Well, back to, back to pictures then. Um, one of the things I don't want to spend a ton of time on, but I do want to just run by you real quick. We've had previous conversations over the years about how you use trail cameras, how you place them, um, you know, when you're checking them, when they're, when you're moving them, stuff like that. But when it comes specifically to patterning bucks, like not just getting a basic inventory in the summer, uh, not just trying to get, you know, what's around, but when you are actively trying to pattern a specific buck, like this deer, for example, that Wade just killed when he showed back up and you realized, Oh wow, we've got a chance at this deer, but we got to figure him out ASAP before he disappears. How does your camera placement change, if at all, in that kind of situation when you're like, we need to learn this deer and put together a pattern now? Does, do things change or do you always have your cameras in the same places and they just stay there? There are historical cameras everywhere that stay there that are on great travel routes or hub scrapes or places. You know, when you watch a farm or watch a field and you're hunting it, you go, I need a camera right there. And then it always produces for you, you know, and yeah. you watch a certain food plot and that's got 80% of the movement. The rest of the plot's got 20, right? So, you know, but then when we find a target, then we might go from three broad looking cameras in that area to 10. I call it the blitzkrieg with, with cams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go in, you're trying to win the war, right? Everybody knows from history that the term blitzkrieg, yep. well, you're going in there, you got to be wise about it. You can't run him out of there got to be smart get as much intel as you can and you know you know six seven years ago before the advent of the cell cams you didn't have real-time information now you do so my my uh, methods have changed from strictly looking at historical patterns and trying to predict the future to that coupled with real-time in the now um, information through cell cams and it's uh i can tell you those cell cams are are a deadly, deadly tool when coupled with historical information from a file that you've, you've kept on a deer. It, it is a one-two punch that is unbeatable for mature bucks. Yeah. Particularly particularly in phases like this one on, on greener pastures. We're in phase two from our show 13, and they're just not moving very far. If you put a buck to bed and you've got a decent deer cast prediction that afternoon, chances are you're going to see him. When you do this blitzkrieg and you go and you increase the concentration of cameras, what are the, what are the kinds of places you're going to place those extra cameras and how are you doing it so that you don't mess up you know, your chances of still seeing him? What's, what's the best way to do that in a low-impact way where you get enough information that's relevant but not so much so that you never see him again? It changes throughout the year. This time of the year, they're not moving very far because they're on food source. They haven't started expanding their home range hardly at all. And I'm on entry and exit trails in and around a food source that I'm trying to take the deer, or I'm on an acorn plot that has a bunch of, you know, acorns falling. And I'm trying to figure out where he's coming from, where he's bedding. I probably have an idea based on historical, you know, hunting of the farm. And I, I'm, I'm trying to kill him in and around that food source of an afternoon unless by chance I get a strong north wind then I'll try them of the morning first north is always golden we've talked about that before on your podcast I, I love the first morning the winds out of the north tomorrow morning is that for us here so 
Um, if we don't have too many cocktails when Matt gets here tonight, we might have tomorrow. <laughs> if not, we'll be out there tomorrow afternoon. But um, I, I love that. Now that will change as you get into late October. Then I'm I'm on scrapes, man. I've got every scrape covered that I can find in what I anticipate to be his home core. And then suddenly, instead of the Blitzkrieg being very concentrated on a small area, it, it expands as I anticipate the home range is going to expand. In other words, Wade's deer was fairly, fairly consistent, 200 yards apart, two major fields. He was daylighting on both of them in the evenings. Very rare for a six and a half year old deer to do. Uh, but you get into late October, all of a sudden that home range is going to expand and you, you got to have a lot more scrapes covered to figure out where he's going to be. Cause that's what he's hitting at that time. Right now he's hitting food source late October, early November, he's hitting scrapes, get back through the rut. Then I'm on just where the heck is he going to be? It's a lot of randomness. So I'm on trails oftentimes then, and then late November, I'm, I'm back into scrapes and food sources. So, you know, as we transition through the season, these light switch events that we talk about in 13 and in deer season 22, then, you know, you can, you can adjust your tactics. And all of this is laid out in deer cast. Like we talk, we break these phases down, um, you know, as, as deeply as we can to help people understand what the deer are doing at different times of the year. Well, if you adjust your camera strategy to what they're doing, you're going to be so much more effective. And if you find a target buck, put a lot of cameras on him, you're going to up your odds for killing him, yeah. certainly seeing it, possibly killing him. Where does, where does glassing or observation fit into your data kind of mix these days? Is that something you do much still or with the advent of cell cams I, I, do not need to do that as much? I still do a lot of it, a lot because a camera only shows you one little spot, right? Like they tell you a lot, but they also don't tell you a lot, if you will. And that gets especially true in terrain and country that is more difficult to anticipate and interpret. In other words, like big open country throws hunters for a curve because they're, they can be anywhere, everywhere, you know, tall grass, big swampy areas. It's all the same, all flat river bottoms, big CRP expanses, big tillable, those types of examples where the, the, it's really, really big cover. They oftentimes are much more random within and therefore much more difficult to pattern contrast that with where we were last night, brushy, brushy, heavy security cover, food right next to it. He's not moving very far. He's got bed, he's got food, he's got water. When that gets big, it's much more difficult to pattern them. So I, I spread out and I watch that oftentimes as opposed to depend on cell cams. Sometimes cell cams or cameras in general will almost lock you into a pattern and, and handcuff you or put you in a straitjacket to where you can't make a good decision. And sometimes you got to get back out there, put eyes on the ground, boots on the ground and figure it out that way. So it really depends on the environment that I'm dealing with. Yeah. And, and like, when would you do that kind of thing? Is that like, if, if, let's say you're in an environment or situation where you realize like, I, I need this additional Intel. I need to go out and watch. Are you just doing that on the nights when the conditions aren't right to actually go in for a strike and for a kill? And you're like, well, there's not a great opportunity to kill something right now. So I'm going to sit back and watch. Or are you doing this every morning in October when you're not hunting? Or what does that actually look like? You hit two nails on the head. Both of those examples are exactly when I do it. And then I do it when the camera reports and the cell cams 
have me scratching my head. In other words, like this buck was here last year, but I'm not getting him this year. Did he switch to one part of the field? You know, as bucks age, that's another part of the equation and another part of, of patterning a deer what they do at age three varies differently from four or five. And then when they get to six or seven, suddenly things start to shrink. If you took a circle and it would be very large at age three, it slowly but surely shrinks as a deer ages. You get into six, seven, or eight. If you could find where he's at, you could kill him because he's not moving very far. They get slow. Their metabolism slows way down. They get almost a little bit lazy. I oftentimes use an analogy of, an older pet, an older dog, as you watch them age through life, take a cat, you know, that's, you know, age one or two, that thing's bouncing off the walls half the day, you know? <laughs> yeah. By the time that cat's 10 or 12, it's laying around sleeping all day. And dogs are, are very much the same, puppy versus, you know, a, a dog that's 10, 11, or 12. And deer are the exact same way. So you have to always keep in mind what age is he and what are his mannerisms going to be like? And am I off of him just a little bit? Is he here, but my cameras aren't seeing him. I need to go watch from afar if it's possible and perhaps try to find him. And that, that has worked many times for me. So it, it really comes down to the environment and the age of the deer. Okay. Now, and the weather, and the weather right? Like we're in this terrible pattern two years in a row of these, Every day, it's 10 degrees above normal temperatures. I don't know if it's like that for you up in Michigan, but it has been for us here. And it's like the La Nina force that's out in the Pacific has set a new normal to to the deer movement. What used to be a poor on deer cast is now really an okay because the deer have adjusted to these warmer temperatures. That's going to switch in March or April when it turns over to to an El Nino, but the La Nina has really smoked us here in the Midwest, both in overall rainfall and overall average temperature the last couple of seasons. And we've gone through these before, um, you know, in years past. So we kind of know how to adjust to it. I don't, have you been above norm there where you live? It's been pretty warm throughout the summer. Yeah. We're in a little bit of a, a better place the last, like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 days, it's finally kind yeah, of dropped down. Finally got to normal, right? Yeah. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so now normal is the new cold front. It has right. been for the last seasons. It's it's crazy. And that's all through that La Nina's effect on us out there in the Pacific. It's, it has a huge effect on overall environment, rainfall, and thus deer movement. That's interesting. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This, this situation in which we realize that we need to get more intel and we need to go out and actually watch. The perfect situation, I think, is is where you can drive to somewhere and sit in your truck and glass from a hill, let's say. Super safe, great view. You've got an opening you can look in down, down into. That sounds easy. Like That's an easy option. But what about a situation where you don't have that hill that you can safely get up on top of and you, if you wanted to learn more about what this deer is, do, is doing... You would have to get in there and climb up into a tree or something. Do you ever do that kind of thing anymore, like an actual observation sit? And if so, how do you do that in a way that you feel confident you can get the intel you need without damaging things? Is that, you know, what's your thoughts on that? I absolutely do it. And um, I did it on the night of October 2nd. I was sharing that story with you before we started recording. There was a buck that I had pictures of on a brand new spot. And, you know, I went in there, we have a blind kind of set up where we think we can kill him, but we're also like, we're probably going to have to move this or go to a different tree or whatever. So let's go have a sit there and see if we see him. And what do you know? He walks in 25 yards and I, I goofed the whole situation up and I don't even get my bow draw because I was in a bad position. I kind of had my head out of the game and I got very excited very quickly and I really, really botched it up and, and, um, <laughs> screwed up on a, on a really big deer but I was doing it that night. So I do a lot of observation sits. And I think one of those situations would be, you know, like say it's a big timber track and it's just lots of timber and you know, the deer are in there, but you know, outside of camera photos, or you're not going to observe that timber because you can't see in there. You've just got to be very wise about the days you'll go in there and where you're going to sit and how you're going to set up. Like I love, love high pressure days. 30 point, give me 30.1 and rising 
And I feel much more confident going into a timber and affecting less than on a 29.8 with cloud cover and swirly winds where you're going to affect a lot of stuff. So be wise about the weather conditions when you choose to go do it and be wise about your access and then affect less. I don't walk and scout a tremendous a lot, a tremendous amount during the season. I do all of that in the off season. I walk the, the you know, leather off the bottom of the shoes, shed hunting and the off season, but come season, I am really cautious about getting in there and scouting an area unless the weather is just absolutely pristine and perfect because I think the worst thing you can do as a hunter is is bounce a deer out of, of where you're trying to kill him. I mean, unless you just don't care, you know, unless you're, you know, like, you know, I'm not in it trying to pattern a buck. I'm in it to go enjoy myself and I want to go cover some ground on this tract of ground today and see what the deer sign looks like and jump in a tree saddle and see if I kill one. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. The great thing about deer hunting, there's a lot of different techniques where you can kill them. My personal technique and my personal desire is to never affect the deer and try not to let them know they're being hunted. That's because that's worked for me in the past. So therefore I'm very cautious about those days that I'll go do that, that technique where I'm actually trying to gain Intel by going into their world, if you will. Yeah. So when you're doing an, uh, an observation sit or you're glassing, what specifically, and I, I mean, I'm sure the answer is everything, but I guess I'm looking for a little bit more nuance as far as what specifically are you looking for? Like, what are the things like you sit, you see the buck pop out in your mind, what are the key data points that you need to preserve from that observation? Uh, and how do you then do that? So you, you, you see the buck, let's say, do you go home, Do you go pull up DeerCast and put in the notes like, okay, I saw him and he came from here and he did X and, and all that? Or, or how do you take advantage of a sighting and, and squeeze that for as much as possible? Maybe that's what I'm getting at. It, it definitely goes back into that overall data bank, if you will, of what's the crop rotation? What phase are we in? What time of the year is it? What is the weather like today? What made him move during daylight? Where did he come from? Where is he going? It's really as simple as what I just said right there. Where did he bed? Where is he heading to feed? Or if it's a later, and I'm, I'm speaking in terms of where I'm at right now in the season, which is, you know, early October and they're, they're on food patterns, that's going to change drastically coming up here because the home ranges are going to expand. And then in November, it's, you know, they bar the door. They're, they're all over the, the dadgum place. So all of those different, factors have to be either journaled or remembered or put into that overall data bank of of your personal deer memory slash history slash predictive model whatever that is for you as a person it has to be documented some way so that you can in eight years ten years seven years go back not necessarily to reflect on that deer but reflect on what the deer in general do with those conditions when they repeat, because when weather conditions repeat and mass crop repeats and crop rotation repeats, the deer in general will most likely act and bed the same way that they are when you made that observation. Yeah. So something you said there made me, it it, it triggered a situation that I've oftentimes found myself in wondering about. 
Uh, and I think it has, it's tied to this kind of observation type situation where you see a deer do something and then you think about, okay, what was the wind doing on the, at that particular time and why did he come from where he came from and why was he going where he was going? One of the dilemmas I oftentimes find myself is that I'm looking at a daylight photo or I'm looking at some piece of data that says, okay, that buck was in here on this day. What was the wind, you know, that day? And I'll say, okay, it was a Northwest or whatever, but then maybe it was different in the morning versus the evening. And I guess I'm curious, what do you think matters more when it comes to like predicting what a buck's going to do is, is the wind in the morning when he went back to bed, the most important thing to predict what he's going to do, or is it the wind in the evening when he comes out to his food source, like which is influencing his behavior more, um, I don't know if I'm explaining this question well. Does that make sense, Mark? Mark, are you are you talking in terms of speed or direction? I was thinking direction, but both would be interesting. Um, wind speed is what I pay most attention to. Uh, I pay almost no attention to wind direction as it pertains to a buck's patternable and predictive movements as much as I do speed. Um, hmm. I am not one that conforms to the thought that direction of wind will dictate a lot for a deer. I'm sure it does, but I don't think it's as important as, as I, as I think some people think it is, if that makes sense. Just, that's just based on my observations. I'm much more interested in the speed and his overall demeanor which I think speed has a great deal to do with than I am the direction of the wind. So tell me a little bit more about that then. So if, if the speed is really what might be influencing, I mean, are you saying it might influence whether or not a buck were to come out in daylight again, or if, you know, he's going to be more active? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's combined with a lot of other weather factors. And when, when a lot of them optimize, that's when you see those magical days of like, holy shit, I saw three shooters tonight, you know, or I saw 30 deer, but uh, you know, the other night I sat the same place and I saw three deer and you know, a lot of things were similar, but all of a sudden when several things optimize, like we're about to do that tomorrow and the next day, at least here in the Midwest, there's a bunch of weather factors that are optimizing. And we're, uh, we're very anxious for this, this next three or four day period here. Can you, can you, in a way that won't, you know, give away too much information, would you be willing to walk me through, you know, what your, how you're going to take advantage of this optimal set of conditions and how you are going to, you know, pattern or, or try to take advantage of a pattern that you've been developing with, with a buck of your own? Is there an example you could share of like, this is what he's done in the history. This is what the pictures tell me now. This is how this lines up with the current weather pattern. And is there a case study that we have here that might work to discuss? Uh, no, because okay. three of the, three of the, I shouldn't answer it that way. Yes, there is. But in this year, this instance, three of the bucks that I'm hunting are bucks that don't home core on my farms. Like I'm waiting for them to show and then I'm going to go hunt them and none of them are on there right now. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So th- because I, I hunt a lot of small parcels and therefore I'm just off oftentimes. So I got to wait for them to come in. Um, 
so in it in direct answer to your question and then the other one that i'm hunting i've really got four targets that i'm hunting this year and the other one i think does live there a lot however the wind direction is completely wrong to hunt him over the next few days so um so that's why my simple answer was no in terms of who i'm hunting right now however matt's in perry's got a tag so there are other bucks that i think are going to play quite well through these conditions and that's looking at historical data there are bucks that have been there their lives and the conditions are lining up if we can put them to bed we should see them and possibly kill them. It's exactly what we did last night with Wade. So, and the reason I say that is because I've had many days over the past 10 days where I've had a buck early morning on a cell cam and go, he's not coming out tonight. The weather conditions aren't right. Uh, I don't think he's going to daylight tonight. And therefore we choose not to go in there. And more often than not, he he did not. That's going to change. Um, here with this weather front we're going to be below normal temperatures we've got cold north winds and these weather fronts i will say that through la nina when you get them they're that much more important because we get so few when you get one holy cow man they're all on their damn feet and they're moving a little bit further they're moving earlier they're moving a little farther it's pretty cool what's about to happen here in the Midwest. so that raises another question then We've got maybe three main categories of data, I guess you could say, that might help us make a decision. One of those categories is historical data, so past sightings, past pictures. This, the next thing is like our recent intel, so what are our cell cameras are telling us right now, or what is the regular camera that we checked within the last few days tell us right now? That's the second category. And the third category is all of the weather, condition, environment type stuff that might impact something. Now that we have that recent, you know, now that cell cameras are, have entered the picture, how has that, you know, how has that changed the value of one of the or, uh, what, those different categories? So, is historical patterns is that less important now because you've got this recent intel, or is it is it still on equal plan? Is no, it, it an equal makes, playing field? It just makes it that much more effective and, and validates what you're assumptions are much quicker for you, right? You could, it or invalidates, right? So Reconics has a saying, see what you've been missing. Well, cell cams also play what you haven't been missing. Like I've got shooters that we had summer Intel on that I have anticipated to show up on certain farms that they just haven't yet. So it tells you not to go there until they do. So the, the fourth piece to that, you named three very important ones. I would divide the weather and the environment literally into those two categories so weather data yes and then environment which i always look at crop rotation and mascots so food source you know weather's going to affect how they feed what's planted where and what the mass crop is is going to uh affect where they feed so those two things in combination can help you get ahead of where he's going to be as as opposed to behind yeah what about when some of these things conflict so what if you have a uh, – what if the weather is lousy, if it's not as good as it should be, but you have a, a two-year-in-a-row kind of annual pattern that this buck always starts cruising through here the last week of October, and he, he's been rock solid here, you know, going crazy the 25th through the 30th the last two years. 
it now that arrives this year and you're just not loving the weather, but you know that historically he's been moving in daylight during that time period. You know, in that kind of example or some other example where two or or three of these different things don't all line up, do you do you, which do you trust? Like do you always fall back and say, Well, history says he's gonna start moving through here, so I gotta give it a shot, or do you now wait until the cell cameras confirm it, you know, irrefutably? It, it depends on the time of the year. So in answer to that question, if it's 25th through the 30th, I'm hunting him whether it's great weather or not because his testosterone's at a level. It's going to kind of trump the weather a little bit. You don't need nearly as great a weather to kill them then as you do now when they're in a food pattern and moving 100 yards from their bed to their feed each day. Even though it's less of a distance, it takes much better conditions for them to daylight. And I'm, I'm speaking in terms of older deer that doesn't mean that a year and a half or two and a half won't do it but if you're hunting a five or six year old deer man things better be awfully perfect to get that sucker up and see him during daylight because they're walking slow they stand up they stretch they browse around they're just late moving during daylight you know and it's it's very difficult to get close enough to see a deer of age six of an evening or of a morning it's extremely difficult to get in that short period or short distance that they're going to move during daylight. It's much easier to do so in late October, earlier November, when the distance increases and when testosterone is higher and they're actually moving, moving better. You know, they just move better this time of the year. They're finicky, man. It's gotta be all, all systems have to be green light to really expect to see a deer of that age class. So I answered that a, a little long, but, uh, I, I believe that's the correct answer to your question. Yeah, yeah, I, I follow you. Kind of back to the annual pattern thing. One other thing I'm curious about how cell cameras have, I guess you kind of said it, sometimes they confirm what you what you believe or you confirm your assumptions, but how has your thoughts on annual patterns evolved over the years, especially now that you maybe we can confirm them or or disprove them more accurately do you do you still see this to be a a pretty consistent thing that you can plan on and how how tight of a repeat have you you know now seen things to be do you look at this and think man if they did it the last year they're likely to do it again on the same day the same week the same condition like what i guess give me more I, annual I, patterns I, I hear you and i i get where you're going and yes, I still b- believe that with every fiber of my being. However, there are factors that affect it slightly. And I've mentioned it a few times in our conversation, the, the environment with mass crop and, and overall, you know, crop rotation affects it. Cover affects it. You know, a farmer cutting a field one year. Or here's a great example. Uh, brush got out of control on a CRP farm. And that's where the buck was bedding and FSA got on that farmer's tail and said, you've got to clean that brush off of there. Last year, it was all six foot tall. This year, it is seven inches tall. Those types of factors affect deer's bed and behavior greatly. So your overall awareness to your environment is just as important to the patterning of a deer as it is sitting in a computer and writing down all your notes and then looking at the notes and then looking backwards. Like I always say why, no matter whether it's a picture or a sighting or anything else, 
why is he doing what he's doing today, whether that be direction of travel, whether that be moving, whether that be not moving, uh, whether that be a neighbor saying, hey, I just saw this certain deer. And you go, wait a minute, that's a deer I'm hunting over here. You know, I always go, why? What made things happen? Whether that be something that happened consistently or whether it's something that changed. So, yes, I believe it with every fiber of my being, but you also have to be very nimble in the moment to accept change and go, dang it, my plan that I made in July and August is not coming to fruition. Why is it not coming to fruition? I had all this laid out, man. I was going to kill him on October the 5th. Well, why aren't you killing him? Um, it, it, there, there's reasons uh, because they it's the chess match that I think people get uh, so addicted to. Um, so if you figure out the whys and the more the whys that you figure out, the more deer and the more mature deer you're you're going to kill. Yeah. So so let's go back to a little bit of the um you know the analyzing of all this data. So there's these different categories of data we've we've been discussing and then there's what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen next week and we're trying to decide okay based on all this data we have what's he going to do tomorrow and where should I hunt. There's these different pieces of data that we can connect back to back to history. So back to the picture we got yesterday or back to the pattern he had last year. How tight of a connection or how many of these things have to line up before you were to go in there? And so my the example would be let's say you're trying to decide where to hunt the first week of October or let's let's say later. We'll say the you know last week of October and you have daylight pictures of him you know, yesterday and the day before with a certain wind speed and, you know, good cold front kind of conditions that came passing through. Now you're saying, what should I do the next day? If the next day, if, if you don't have that same condition, the same set of conditions in place, do you still move on it? Or do you want to have like, okay, I want the same location matched up with the same conditions before I jump in there and try to kill him again? I generally, it, more often than not, you know, it's it's really about the weather for me. Like as you know, I am a slave to it. And I mean, it's why we created DeerCast. Like, I firmly believe that there are windows of opportunity each year that you're given with a daylight opportunity, and that all revolves around the weather and how close you can get to that deer's bed, depending on time of the year and and how far they're moving at that time of the year. So, I'm pretty pretty disciplined when it comes to making sure it's the right opportunity because I go back to my statement earlier saying I'd never want them to know that they're being hunted like that's I just I don't want them to kill me right like I'm trying to kill them so in my mind it's this me against them game of chess and I want to be the one saying checkmate I want to be the one I don't want him to smell me because to me if a deer smells me and figures me out, like it's, it's just dang near over every time. I don't know if you've noticed that through time, but oh, yeah. when they, get you, when they get you, they got you. So don't let them get you. <laughs> yeah. that, that should be a t-shirt when they get you, they got you. Don't <laughs> yeah. let them get you. Because man, when they figure you out, buddy, they're a lot better. They're a lot better at this than we are. And they're good at living. I say it all the time. They are good at living and they're terrible at dying. I mean, it is hard to kill a mature deer and if you mess up and goof him up, 
man alive does it make him tougher that year and, and years years in the future so i'm always i'm always betting on the come in betting terms so i'm waiting i'm waiting i'm waiting and then i try to strike when when things line up i want optimized everything to go in there and try and kill that deer that's just me um so you know other days i'm out shooting does other days i'm filming someone but if it's a, a specific target that i'm trying to hunt I actually hunt him very few days, if that makes sense. I think back to the deer I've killed over the last few years. I've spent very few days actually where I thought I was going to kill him. You got a target buck that shows up. You get a cell picture of him, let's say, two days in a row with a north wind, nice, good weather. And for whatever reason, you you couldn't be out hunting in this location because you went to texas or you were somewhere else but he's daylighting sure. twice in a row day three totally different conditions though not as good but he was daylight two days in a row are you are you saying barometer drop barometer drop wind speed dropped clouds rolled in yeah Chances are i may not go try him but you're already behind a little bit like yeah. that's it did you ever notice about a, a mature buck they seldom almost never daylight every single day for a week right oh, you, yeah. if you you know you'll get a day here and a day there there's some randomness to when they daylight and that's the, again it's another reason we did our predictive model it's like why why did he day oh there it is there it is there it is you put it all together in an algorithm with 13 different variables and we try to help people predict when the best movement's going to be when the optimized conditions are there so i'm trying to pick those days for me personally, and I'm using historical data that I've compiled on that deer, on that farm, on the crops, everything all combined together to go, there it is. There's the day. Here's where I'm going to try yeah. and you know, just try to be right more than you are wrong, but I'm still wrong a heck of a lot more than I'm right. I still, I make a lot of bad judgments. We all are right. You know, like in, in baseball, they say you're very successful. If you get, you know, you bat 250, you're, you're successful one fourth of the time. Well, in, in hunting, what would it be? It was one hundredth of a tire, mm -hmm. <laughs> one tenth. You know, it's you're batting you're batting under a hundred. I know that for a mature buck, you're batting way under a very low average. It's um, a very low. If you just what do you get the whole season? Maybe a chance to a chance to two or three, and that's you know that's hunting a lot. Yeah. You don't get many chances. So when you take your shot. You know, you need to try have everything in your favor that you can. And that's one side of the equation. The other side of the the equation is persistence. And the numbers game does come up. There's a do factor in everything. In fact, that night that I sat there and I saw that target in my pre-hunt interview, I talked about, I haven't had a daylight photo of this deer. I've had one in the last month. Since he shut his velvet, I had had one daylight photo of him. And I said, but I believe he's here because I'm getting nighttime photos and there is a do factor in hunting and he's going to daylight again soon. And sure enough, he daylighted that night and I goofed it up. I jacked it up terribly, but the do factor does come into play, but I have a locked in freaking access. I had a perfect wind speed. I had a perfect wind direction to access it. So I felt safely that I could get there and then leave into that. What is kind of a quasi observation set yet. Nah, I might still kill him here. Well, it worked, but I goofed it up. So there's one of my chances this year. I know that. I yeah. knew it when it happened. Got out of there. I'm like, that's 
one of my few opportunities I'll have. And he's a, he's a, he's a whopper, man. The steer's really, really big. And I, I jacked it up. I, I, I left there that night thinking I'll probably not have that chance again this year. That was my exact thoughts. So when you have, this is, this is off topic, but I can't help but ask, like when you have something like that happen, even someone as experienced and who's had as much success as you have, how do you like process deal with that and move on from it? Like how, how'd you handle that night sitting at sitting in bed at home after you had this monster within range and you couldn't pull it together? What, uh, what do you do? Closer in baseball's mentality. I have a lot of baseball analogies cause I, I watched every single pitch of every Cardinal game since I was like 10, right? Mm-hmm. I love baseball. So closers mentality, really terrible memory, get over it quickly and move on. That's the best thing you can do. Um, when it happens, because if you, if you wear it, if it's in your mind and it's working on you, you're going to goof the next one up and the next one up. Like you have to get over it within seconds and move on. That's all you can do. It happened. It's ancient history now. Use it to better yourself in the next situation. But get, eliminate emotion from making mistakes. You have to, or it will eat you up the full season. You're going to goof it up. Trust me on experience, because when I was younger, I was the, I was the dumbest hunter man i'd get so mad at situations because those those bucks meant so much to me right well as i've aged i've learned that you got to get over it and move on to the next the next opportunity because if you're not thinking with a clear head you're not going to put yourself in the right position the next time and that's that's kind of mental side of the game we're getting off topic here a little bit but i think it is a very important part of the game is keeping a clear head and keeping a positive attitude i i can't tell you I'm like a very optimistic person in general. And like I learned a long time ago from a, a, a legend in our County, Paul Sexar. I was like maybe 14 or 15. And he took the time to sit down and talk to me about Turkey hunting and Turkey hunting tactics. And the one thing that he said in that moment, that night I had with him, he said, and it was really Joe, his brother that pointed it out. He said, Paul hunts like he's about to kill a Turkey every single second of every single hunt. Hmm. And that's what kills so many. And that type of focus, so it's reality, you're talking about focus, that will help you kill more game, especially with a positive attitude. I'm going to kill him. I know I'm going to kill him. He's here tonight. And you know what, Mark? I didn't have that on October the 2nd. I mentioned before we got on the phone, I went in a little rusty. This was my only second sit of the season. And I was a little nonchalant about things that night and it cost me a giant. I should have been ready. I should have lived by the advice that I've lived by for all these years. And I didn't, and it cost me a deer. I didn't even get my bow drawn. I was so ill prepared. And you know, and I've been in that situation a lot of times, but my mental game sucked that night and it cost me a deer. So it's not me, but you know what? By the time I got to the truck, I was over it. And I was thinking about the weather for the next night's hunt. I have learned that. Like, you, you got to have a closer's mentality. Get over it quickly. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. So, speaking of your target bucks, I did want to return to a question I had related to your other target bucks. You mentioned how most of these deer are all like not homebodies. They live somewhere else, and they just occasionally come into your neck of the woods. How yep. does your approach to patterning a deer change in that scenario? When you when you have a deer that you know is just an infrequent visitor, does does anything we've talked about is it different because of that uh, circumstance in any way? deeper dive man deeper dive find every that's why i keep every picture they're on there seldom so every piece of every piece of the puzzle you get is so much more important than a homeboy who you get all the time right it's like um you know it's like that friend that you can see every day at the bar and go have a beer with him you know what he's going to do right you know when he's going to be there you know what he's going to say when you sit down to have the bar uh, the beer with him you know what stories he's going to tell when he's had too many beers. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, the guy that you only see once a year, you can't wait to have that conversation. What are you going to learn new? And uh, you, you're a little bit more in tune with that guy because it's, it's, a, it's something that occurs seldom. 
So therefore, I have files on all of these deer. I know exactly when I've had pictures of them in the past. I know what the conditions were. I know what the, the crop rotation was. And in fact, the deer that I'm, what I would consider my number one target, he's, he's really, really large. But he was, he was only on me, I think, based on what I can tell, a few hours last season. However, when the crop rotation was the same in 2020, he was on me several days. So therefore, my confidence is much higher about him this year. Who he is age? He is age. He was five, six, he's seven and a half this year. My confidence is fairly high that when he gets to my farm, he if he's still alive, if he hasn't been killed by another hunter or a car or EHD or something like that, if I get him, I think he may stay enough days that I'll possibly have a shot at him. So. That goes back to that environment. Crop rotation is exactly what it was in 2020, not only on my farm, but all of the surrounding area, because I look at everything when it comes to deer hunting. Uh, okay, so I know this is going to be situation dependent, but if we had to generalize, if you have a buck like this, do you, in this kind of case, in the world of cell cameras, are you always going to wait until you get the camera picture to say, oh, he's back? Nope. Or is that sometimes I, too late? I want to be the camera. So I'm going to be sitting there waiting because I, I've never taken very many pictures of him. So I damn well better be there the day I do. So I'm going to use historical data to be there and try and be the camera, if that makes sense. So Absolutely. is it different, a different type buck, different type personality? Man, if you miss your opportunity, you're out. I've got great locations. I've got great access in and out. I'm going to use them. I'm going to hunt them. And I'm going to hunt on much I will take my shots on lesser weather than what I normally would on a homeboy. On a homeboy that's not leaving, I don't want to run him out. On a deer that's seldom there, I better be there when he's there. So I'm going to hunt a little more often. Yep. Okay. Um, what about, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how patterning, you know, can be a pretty important thing in these earlier parts of the year. But when we get into the rut, things are a little bit different. How how does your approach to patterning deer change once we get into those rut phases? And and do you even think you can pattern a deer during the rut? My pattern changes. I head to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> there it is. I, I I am one of those guys that I I don't want to say I hate the rut, but I much prefer hunting October and December, Bucktober and Deer Summer than I do November because the way that I hunt, me personally, I hunt based on expectation and data and data points rather than hope. And when it comes to, so it's expectation rather than hope. We're real good in and around the food source. I mean, we kill a lot of deer, you know, food source tucked close to cover. That's, a, that's a, an equation that has worked well for Terry and I for, for quite a while now. When you get to November and they start spreading out and suddenly home core ranges get just go like shotgun approach, it's much more difficult to run into a deer. They're chasing does and and uh, we still kill them during that period and I still hunt them, but it gets much tougher to kill a specific deer, which is what I'm typically trying to do in November than it is, say, in October and December. Yeah. Does, does any, does any of this stuff still apply during the rut? Like, are you going to get, 
you know, annual pattern type data and say, well, I'm, I'm hunting here the second week of November and he did this thing last year. Do you ever expect that kind of stuff to repeat during that part of the year or do those things, it's just too random? Yeah, they still repeat like different things repeat though. Like let's fast forward out of October. Let's fast forward 30 days and go into early November, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, three or four of the best dadgum days. They're still hitting scrapes. They're still checking food sources for the first available dough. They're covering a lot more ground. So you can go back and look at that data and kill that deer doing those exact thing, same things. When I speak of my disdain for the rut, it's really in and around once they start locking down. So 12, 11th, 12th of November through about the 17th, 18th, that period right there is a very frustrating time for me. Um, I would much rather be in Missouri with a rifle in my hand or where my range is extended or in Texas where I feel like the bucks are still doing things like they were doing here in late October because the rut is later down there. So I kind of, I kind of go South to get on a, a more patternable period, or I go to Missouri where we can have a good time and it's rifle season and you can stretch it out a little bit. If you see a buck tending a doe, those types of things. However, just prior to lockdown and just after, absolutely, you can go back and look at pictures and, and figure out a buck's pattern. It's just that they're covering more ground and, and, and walking more during daylight. So therefore, you, you change where you're sitting. You're no longer sitting on a food plot, right? You're not, one of the dumbest places you can be is on a greenfield. You know, I get into transition. I get into the bedroom. I start hunting mornings. I start hunting full day sits. So the tactics change drastically. But yes, you can absolutely kill a buck in his bedroom uh, during that period of, of the year, especially when he ages. You take a deer, say you've been, you know, fooled by this deer when he's three, four, five, and suddenly he's six. He may not move as much. Uh, when he's seven, when he's eight, all of a sudden he's going to daylight a little bit more. He gets hungry a little bit more often, and you can start taking advantage of the th his weaknesses. One of the toughest de deer to kill is like a a, a deer in his prime at age four and five they just they don't daylight quite as much so six is also another another challenging year so you, you always keep in mind the age of the deer the overall environment but yeah you can you can smoke them during the rut you know before they get with the does once they're with the does that's when it gets a little real challenging and i, I think if you kill a deer that's tending a doe you should really go buy a lottery ticket that day because you probably got fairly fortunate on that day <laughs> uh, and that's the truth but that's where that's where do factor comes in that's where i'm in good country i know he's here i am going to spend every single solid daylight hour in a stand every single day to increase my odds that's how you kill them once they're locked down just absolute seat time in the stand yeah Let's say we're after one specific buck in a scenario like you're describing. There's there's just the one guy that I really want to get. And we do all the things you described, that do factor, get out there, spend a lot of time, be in the general area. Is it a waste of time to chase cell camera pictures or to chase, um, you know, well, he did this two days ago. I think I got to be in this little corner um, during that particular time of year you know, November 3rd through the 15th or something like that, um, specifically. It's not a waste of time because you know, he's there and that's part of the equation that time of the year. Um, it, you know, you get in the rut and you go, uh, where's my target? I haven't had a picture of him in six, seven days. Well, he's standing there looking at a girlfriend, you know? So when you get a self picture, you're like, ah, oh, he's still here. So it, that's important. Just, just having the deer, 
in your hunting area is half the battle. So therefore get in there and hunt his butt, you know, uh, not having him changes that a little bit. Uh, so the, the rut brings about, like, if we were having this conversation, I think a lot of what I would be talking about might switch up a little bit because right now my mind is so center focused on greener pastures, early October, you know, food, bed, that type of stuff. If we are having this conversation November 5th, I, I might answer some of these things differently, but my mind's wrapped around this right now. So I'm trying to fast forward and think how yeah. I will be thinking at that time, you know? So it's, it's different, you know, but I, I love fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. Absolutely love it. Mornings are great. Those crisp, cool mornings, you get good weather. You got bucks walking till nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. It's pretty exciting. I mean, it, it can be a buck factor in certain days when you get the right weather and, and, uh, the right hot dough in the air, you, you find the magic circle and you're going to kill a deer. So it's, it's an exciting time of the year. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, you really prefer for your style of hunting, the early part of the year and the later part of the year. Uh, so let's talk about the later part real quick. Is anything different in the late season when it comes to patterning deer compared to what we just described for that early, earlier stuff, or do you go right back to the same plan? The vastly different, similar plan, but vastly different strategy in terms of food source you're keying in on and most importantly, the thermal cover you're keying in on. Where those bucks bed right now is going to be different than where they're bedding in December. Right now, they're trying to stay cool and they've got cover everywhere because there's leaves on all the trees. Get rid of all the leaves, change the temperature by 30 or 40 degrees for a daytime high, and you've got a different system in place in terms of what the whitetail's trying to do. Uh, he's also in recovery mode as opposed to the mode he's in right now, which is eating everything he can because <coughs> he's about to go crazy during the rut. So a lot of dynamics change there. Does that change at all, though, though how you actually try to pattern him? Like, is the same kind of data? Like, I understand that the the environmental factors are different. But when you sit down at night and try to say, okay, what's this buck going to do tomorrow? Where should I hunt tomorrow? Are you are you weighing things differently? Are you more confident in behaviors repeating or, or anything else when you're actually trying to develop that pattern in December? I'm a little less confident in, in, De- in December. I think December requires a much more optimized wind or not wind, but weather um, occurrence than does October. October, they seem a little more patternable and a little more likely to daylight with perhaps a little less weather then in December, man, it's got to be perfect. And, and again, I'm speaking in terms of not deer in general, but a target buck, like a five, six, seven-year-old deer. Uh, they just act different in December. They're very tired. They may all of a sudden, if there's a little secondary estrus, all of a sudden he'll go do that. So, you know, right now in October, you don't have much of that. December, you do get a lot of it, especially if your your herd's out of balance. So that comes into play. Uh, December can be tricky. Uh, but I look back at historical patterns and I honestly like, I almost prefer Christmas and later, like you take December 20th, 22nd, 23rd, somewhere in there, all the way through the end of the season, January 10th, with the right weather conditions on a major thermal block with the right food source, you're going to go in there and see a pile of deer and possibly kill your number one target. Yeah. That does sound pretty uh, pretty good to me. <laughs> it, it sounds good right now on the high side yeah. in the eighties. It's hot out. We, we, can, we can dream. We know what's in front of us, but you know you got to take each each day as it comes. And 
it's, it's exactly why we did the show 13 because so many things change throughout the season and as they change our tactics have to change yeah so let's let's zoom out a little bit let's talk a little bit more generally here again thinking patterning deer what is the most common or the most egregious mistake that you see other folks making when trying to pattern deer? You've talked to a million deer hunters. You've been exposed to the whole community for decades now. What's that thing that you see keep on popping up that just makes you scratch your head or makes you want to you know, shake somebody by the shoulders and say, don't do that anymore? I get asked this question a lot, and I answer it. Uh, consistently, but I'll add to this answer in this question because of the subject matter today. People underestimate the quarry. I think whitetails are so good at living that they're almost impossible to go kill. They are so tough. And again, I'm speaking of mature bucks that have been around the block. You take a six-year-old buck and buddy, he's a tough, tough son of a gun to even see during daylight he's tough to take a picture of he's even tougher to see and then you got to have the capacity and the ability to kill him and then make a good shot and all the things it's it's so hard to kill a giant okay so you, you couple that with what all they've been through and the overall you know health of the deer and i think people just group deer as a deer a buck is a buck is a buck uh, a deer is as good as going to be just as healthy this year as he is next year. And I, I think they just lose sight of the fact of all the things that are affecting a whitetail deer on a daily basis. Imagine what they go through on a daily basis. First of all, we're trying to kill them. Second of all, you know, they're dealing with all these different changes. All of a sudden there's acorns everywhere one year. Next year there's none. Uh, we're going through a drought this year. You got EHD hitting them. Coyote population's up. Holy cow, I got horned in the side. I've got an infection starting. Uh, I'm older. Oh, I broke a leg. Oh, old Charlie got hit by a car. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different things that affect whitetail behavior. And I, I think people gloss over that and they look at every deer as a deer as a deer. And I think they are as different as people are. Um, and and I, will, I will extend this answer into a general lack of organization if if you're trying to pattern a deer there's nothing wrong with not being organized because i know guys that aren't and they go out and they they kill dandies every year because they they're just good and their prowess is good and they're they're skillful but i think people can help themselves if they have an organizational trait and they keep good notes and they keep all their pictures we all know this guy that's got a handful of sd cards and he just went through all of them and then he goes and puts them back in his cameras, and he never kept one picture off of one card. <laughs> that makes me there's, cringe. There's, du- there's dust on them. They're sitting in the truck. There's soda and coffee spilt on them. You put them in the camera. They don't work. You go to the camera the next time. You didn't get any information. Mm-hmm. We all know that guy, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And I'm not knocking that guy because he's got every right to, to do that as <laughs> I have to be anal and obsessive over it. Uh, but I, I do think a general approach with more organization would help put people in better positions more often. Yeah. Yeah. Here, do you know that guy, Mark? I Point do. Him out. I do know that guy. <laughs> Take him by the shoulders next time you see him. <laughs> I will. Um, I'm curious, and I don't know if there's many opportunities 
for you to have this happen anymore, Mark, but can you think back to the last time that you learned something from another really good deer hunter about patterning deer? So specifically about this idea of patterning deer, is there someone you can think of who's really, really good at it? Do you have that buddy that is as good or better than you at this and that you said, oh, wow, you know, that's a good idea or wow, I never thought of that. Is there anything that comes to mind? Brother Terry, um, we talk almost daily during the deer season, and um, we just compare notes. What are your deer doing? What are you seeing? I mean, it's almost like a coach's meeting or something, you know? I mean, we just talk, and we pick up stuff from each other every day. And I I love collective um, strategizing. So myself, Wade Perry, it is ad nauseum for our wives, Tracy, Marissa, (laughs) Kyle, like I, I think if they had shock collars with controls, they would buzz us every single dinner we have together during the deer (laughs) season because it is all we talk about from the moment we see each other in the morning. We're together usually 10, 12 hours a day, every day, seven days a week, deer hunt, deer season. But that collective thought comes to really good, um, decision-making I do it with Terry. I do it with Wade and Perry. I do it with Josh and Carson. I do it with Matt. Um, you know, Grant Woods, he's the all-time goat as far as I'm concerned when it comes to deer behavior and the science of white-tailed deer, like Bobby Culbertson, Tracker John. There's certain people in my circle that I talk to a lot, and I talk to them um, as much as I can so that I can pull information. I'm selfish, man. If there's something that somebody's got in his mind, I want it, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's going to help you. And, it, and I'm happy to share it, too. Like, I, I think the more we talk and the more communication we have, the better we all get. It's why I think your podcast is so popular. Uh, you're constantly trying to teach. I think it's why, by and large, we've survived 33 years in the outdoor industry. I say it all the time. We're not very good looking. We're not very funny. We better be <laughs> informational. Yeah. So. Um, I'm not saying you fit in that category, Mark, but <laughs> yeah. you, are good. <laughs> you know, I, I think if you're trying to teach and your teachers learn, right. They're, they're hungry for information. So I do it all the time, every day. I, I think that what, what's what makes us better. And also I'm at a, a very interesting time in my life because I'm 55 and I think I forget as much every day as, as I remember. So therefore there are things that Wade Perry will tell tell me, you know, last year you were saying this and I'll be like, Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've forgotten <laughs> some of what I knew. And if people out there that are in their fifties will relate to that comment. So it, it, it's a little tongue in cheek, but it's honestly, there's a little truth to that. So I use these guys, I use their eyes and ears when we're in the blind and I'm starting to use their mind to remind me, Hey, what did we do in this situation when this occurred last time? And they, they have better memories than I do. So uh, it's, I think collective organization and collective thought is a beautiful thing and it, it's going to lead you down really good paths in life, whether that be, you know, in terms of deer hunting or whether that be in terms of your business or whether that is in terms of relationship. I love communication on all facets, sports, life, religion, politics, deer hunting, you name it. I'll sit and talk with anybody for, for hours because man, just, just be the sponge out there and learn all you can. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of collective decision making. And it's it's a lot of fun doing it that way. But then also, I do think, you know, like when you're trying to figure out what this Bucks pattern is, you can sometimes get stuck in your own head or stuck in your own assumptions. But if you just get one other set of eyes on it, all of a sudden they might notice the one thing that you never saw there in the corner, but actually is the key to the whole thing. So talking these things out, you know, getting other perspectives on it can help you see the larger pattern within the data sometimes. So that's such a great point. Um, Absolutely. Open mind, right? Yeah. We also know that guy. We know that guy knows everything. You're not going to tell him anything. You've Mm -hmm. met him, you know, and don't be that guy, you know, don't be the guy that already knows it all. Cause that's the, me, I'm learning every day. I try to figure something out new, I love that collective thought because you hit the nail on the head, man. You never know when somebody's going to bring something to the party that helps the collective group. Last night, Wade shot the deer, but we all as a group killed the deer. There were a lot of different people that were involved in that moment, and we were all there when we recovered him. And that's every hunt in this camp, it takes a village. And one guy shoots it, but the whole village killed it. And, and, and that's why it's so important to enjoy the process going through it as you lead into the hunt and then after the hunt, enjoy it together. That's what makes this sport so cool. You get emotions and, and this unbelievable range of emotions and gratitude and happiness that I can't find anywhere else in life. I've been looking, but it doesn't exist. It's right out there in the great outdoors, man. It's so cool. It's some really, really good stuff. That's for sure. I want to tie a bow on this, Mark, with one last question. And feel free to take a second to kind of collect your thoughts on this. But if but if we had to create right now Mark Drury's three rules to successfully patterning bucks, if you had to have three statements, three things that everyone's got to keep in mind or that the three rules they have to follow to become as good as you are at patterning bucks, what would those three final things be that we need to keep in our heads this season? First and foremost, keep every single solid picture you can, um, and then study them often. So pictures are one part of the equation. Make sure that you keep them all, and then every single picture you look at, ask why, and then figure out why even that two-year-old did what he did, and that will help you become better in the future. That's Step one. Step two, be a slave to the weather in everything you do deer hunting. And I don't care if it's July 1st, November 1st, or February 1st. Pay attention to the weather and pay attention to what you're doing, how it affects the deer movement, how it affects your personality, your movement, and be a slave to the weather. Uh, Number three, when it comes to patterning bucks, start taking really detailed notes about mass crop, about um, overall crop rotation about hunters habit. That's another thing you can pattern, not necessarily yeah. the deer. When's your neighbor hunting? Uh, when am I in your hunting? Am I being too patternable for this deer? So analyze yourself and your environment and everyone around you as much as you analyze the deer. If you do those th- three things and then collectively add them all up and try to create plans for the future you're going to be a much better deer hunter and, and, and find some rewards out there that you aren't finding now. Yeah. Great, great advice. Uh, I love this stuff. This is my favorite thing to talk about. So, uh, so thanks for humoring me, Mark, and getting on here to talk through these things. And I, I want to give you one last chance to, uh, tell folks 
where they can connect with you, where they can see all the great stuff you guys are putting out. How can they find DeerCast? What do we need to know about all those things? Absolutely. DeerCast.com, best way to get it. We've got a free version. We've got a version that's just prediction that's either 9 or $10. And now if you want your environment, a lot of things I've been talking about here today, we've got a version that's $49.99 that, that'll give you one state's plat data or unlimited for, for $74.99. So we've got a price point for everybody from free up to 75 bucks. Deercast.com is that you see everything in there, every social post, every deer that gets killed, every every deer season 22, our semi-live series. You can catch it there or you can catch it on YouTube. Our staff is doing an amazing job bringing the stories out within sometimes within hours of when the deer goes down. Uh, or, of course, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, wherever, wherever you can find Dree Outdoors, we're there and happy to happy to talk to people. We've got a, a team of people that are that are just the best in the industry in, in my you know, biased opinion. I, I just think our team is just amazing. We, you take what Matt and Taylor and Josh and Carson and all our guys in St. Louis are doing and Wade and Perry and Forrest and Ben, I mean, they, they are really putting some unbelievable content out there for people right now to, and we stay in our lane. We try to, we just stay in our deer hunting and turkey hunting lane. And we try not to get out of that. And, you know, we try to love up on people as much as they've loved on us. Yeah, well, you guys uh, continue to do uh, world-class work. I-, I love it. I've loved it for decades. I appreciate you, Mark, and uh, I personally appreciate you You know, always being willing to hop on here and chat and to answer my questions and to help so, so many people out. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Absolutely, Mark. You're, you're not the guy at the bar that I get to see every day. You're that guy I get to talk to once or twice a year. And I yes. always love it. So thank you. Well, I can't wait to uh, hear some some more stories from you down the road once you uh, close the distance again on that big guy who evaded you the other night or one of these other guys. So, so good luck, my friend. I appreciate you, Mark. Good luck out there. Be safe. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that one. I hope that you, just like me, are going to be studying some trail camera photos tonight or maybe looking back on your journal of observations and thinking, hmm, what is this son of a buck going to do? I am looking forward to it. I appreciate you. Deer season is here. This is the good stuff, my friends. I'm having a blast. I hope you are as well. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.